saw in, in Second Chronicles a repeated theme of humility. And so <clears throat> as we think about humility, that's something that is key to the Christian life. It's not just one of the many facets of it, so to speak. It's really at the heart of it. Humbling yourself is necessary for repentance, not just in coming to Christ for salvation at the very beginning of your Christian life, but that really begins the process of a lifetime of humble repentance. Humility is required for you to grow to be more like Christ, being able to admit a specific action or a specific thought or a specific you know, use of your words, being able to admit that that's wrong and being able to admit that that's not like Christ requires humility. Tonight, what I want to look at is not humility, but really a character quality that will prevent humility. Um, you could say humility's nemesis or humility's opposite. What is humility's opposite? Pride. Pride. And, and what I want to look at is specifically sinful pride. Because as, as if you just Googled pride in the Bible, so to speak, you would find several instances where pride is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, e- even being appropriately proud of our children is a good and honorable thing. That's not sinful to be glad for what your children have accomplished or the character that they're growing in. Uh, Jeremiah 9 reminds us to boast in the fact that we know God. That's an appropriate source of pride for us. It is not in anything that we've done, but rather the Lord, the Lord knows me. I know the Lord. That's something to be appropriately proud of. Paul in, in, in the Corinthians, of all people, he boasted in them because of God's grace in them. So the, there, there are biblical examples of good pride, so to speak, but it's sinful pride that I want us to focus on tonight um, as the antithesis of godly humility. Pride is often, for us as human beings, it's so common that we don't realize it. It's like it's like fish not knowing that they're wet. That's because they live and breathe in the water. They don't even realize it's so, um, so much a part of their life. I think pride for us is so much a part of our life that sometimes we don't even realize it. So what I want to do, I don't have a PowerPoint for you. Um, you'll actually have to pay attention uh, tonight as we focus on this. I want to think first about the fruit of pride the evidence of pride. So I want, I want you to think out loud with me. This can be inter- interactive. Um, what are some specific ways that pride, sinful pride, shows up in your life or in our lives, if you want to be more generic and not so um, honest with us? Um, what, what are some specific ways that pride shows up in your thinking, in your life, in your actions? What are some things that come to mind, Mr. Clater? Mm. Comparison. I could have done a better job than this person just did. Yeah, that's an evidence of pride. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John. Mm. Boasting about your accomplishments. 
and uh, especially boasting as if you were solely responsible for them and not including God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would eliminate maybe 74.7% of most social media stuff is probably a lot of, you know, shameless or, or subtle self-promotion. A lot of times that's at the root of a lot of that. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Yeah, being proud about your education, your smarts. Yeah. Yeah, white collar. Yeah, yeah, pride about education, pride about your job. Yeah. What else? Is there another? Yeah, Gil. The The inability to listen. What do you mean? Yeah, the inability to listen and actually hear somebody talk because you're getting ready to say the thing that you want to say uh, or the, to show how you know a lot about this topic too or you have another story that's kind of one-upping the other one. Yeah, the inability to listen. What else? What else? What are fruits, evidences of pride or maybe areas of our life that pride can show up? Yeah, Nancy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like so somebody gives us a compliment or thanks you for something, but you don't ha- take the opportunity to praise the Lord for that. We're taking sole credit for it. Yeah, it can look like that. What else? What's coming to your mind? Mm-hmm. Ross? Mm, being quick to judge. Yeah, too quick to judge, too quick to make a decision without getting any other counsel. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Elsa. Unwillingness to change. When somebody says, hey, have you considered this? This maybe is an area of needed change in your life. The unwillingness to admit and try to change. Yeah, that's good. What else? Mm-hmm. Miss Colleen. Yeah, being, being worried about what people think of you so that it affects your actions. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Good. I want us to think, what are some examples in the Bible where pride shows itself? Either through stories or specific passages What are some biblical instances of pride that's exhibited? What are some pride examples in the Bible? Yeah, Alyssa. Jonah. How was Jonah proud? Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to give in to God's way for him. Jonah. Yeah, that's good. Good. Who else? Yeah. David? The Pharisees, yeah. It was like the poster child for pride, you would think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Caleb? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thought his way was better, 
Uh, maybe he was too lazy. We don't know all the motivations, but why David chose not to go to war when everybody else was. I could see that. There's a couple of notable ones. Ross? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, he, I, I, I was just looking this up this afternoon. It says that, uh, I think it's Ezekiel 24 that mentions that Satan, we believe that that's a reference to that, um, was proud about his beauty and basically his own splendor and glory that God had given him. He was proud about that and wanted to have the position of supreme importance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Joe, Baldasti. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, he's the one that was top, kind of top shelf example. What, what about Nebuchadnezzar? Was, wh how was he shown to be proud? Yes, yes. Yeah. What was, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's punishment for his um, taking the credit for his magnificent kingdom? What was his punishment? Eaten grass, seven years, right? Yeah. And uh, he responded in humility to that. Remember, he learned, and some of the quotes that we sometimes will pray about the who God is, is actually coming from this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, that God had shown himself to, um, that God rebuked because of his pride. Yeah, anybody else that's coming to mind? Pride. Peter. Yeah, Peter, Peter brashly, uh, we actually looked at this on Wednesday night. Peter was so bold to like say, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I would never do that. Maybe these other people around me would do it, but I wouldn't. There's, there's a lot of pride showing up there. Yeah. Was there another hand? Yeah, David. Mm, the Church of Laodicea there in Revelation. Yeah. Nolene? Pharaoh. Yeah, he kept on being shown God's power and greatness and even punishment and, and consequences, but he kept on digging in. He never gave in to God. Yeah, he hardened his heart. Was there another hand? Yeah, Mr. Clayton. Josiah. Josiah. Mm -hmm. One of those good kings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I mentioned this this morning and we didn't look at the passage. I don't think we will tonight, but at the end of his life, at the end of a really good reign, at the end of his life, uh, there's an idea given to him about conquering Pharaoh and, and he's punished for that and he ends up dying the same kind of death as wicked King Ahab uh, because he was proud and he was going about it his own way and not consulting the Lord about it. Yeah can happen to any of us.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately, this independence of God, the, the, the false notion, really, that I can be independent of God and things are going to be okay, that's pride. Yeah, and even, even the, note, the many times it's mentioned that the kings, they grew powerful and mighty and they stopped pursuing the Lord wholeheartedly. That power corrupted them, so to speak. Uh, it doesn't have to corrupt a Christian, but it certainly has the temptation to. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to figure out whether or not they're being proud. The Bible says that they were fighting amongst themselves who was the greatest. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Jamie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he chose uh, Moses striking the rock. He chooses to go his own way. He's been told this is how you're going to get it. Talk to it, and instead he he grabs uh, grabs the the reins, so to speak, of God's ways. Herod, yeah, yeah, well, and even Herod at the beginning of uh, when Christ is coming, what, there's another king coming around? He's going to swiftly try to deal with that, and uh, his uh, evidences of pride don't work out. His own plan, obviously, still didn't quash uh, the coming king, right? Good, good, so we're, we're, we're familiar with pride, we see pride in the Bible, what I want to think about uh, with the time that we have left, I wasn't just going to get examples and pray and we're done. Um, I, I want to share some thoughts with you about pride. Um, there's a guy named Jerry Bridges. He's, he's given some categories of the, the aspect of pride in a book that he wrote called Respectable Sins. And uh, he's not saying that sins are respectable, but he's saying in his book that certain sins are sometimes more tolerated or more overlooked than others. And, and so th these are his distinctions about the categories of pride. Number one, moral self-righteousness. I want you to turn to Luke 18. Moral self-righteousness. Luke 18. Uh, what David LaValle said about, you know, Pharisees, uh, his examples in the Bible of pride Exactly, exactly right. Luke 18 gives us an example of one of, uh, one of these. Luke 18, I want you to look at verse 9. Verse 9 of Luke 18, thinking about the moral self-righteousness aspect of pride. He, Christ, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is a Pharisee evidencing a moral self-righteousness. And, and in verse 11, when it says the Pharisee standing, standing by himself prayed thus, that's not necessarily wrong. That was sometimes done as far as how people sometimes would pray publicly in the temple. But notice the content of his prayer. The things that he lists out as far as sins go are the things that he doesn't struggle with. I thank you, God, that I don't struggle with these sins. And, and the, the only things that he mentions that 
are attributed to him is something that he's really good at, right? He mentions, I fast twice a week, which was twice as much as was kind of expected to fast. He did it twice as much. I give tithes of all that I get. One commentator on this says this, the Pharisee came short of congratulating God on the excellence of his servant, but only just short of it. His prayer is all about him. God, you should be grateful that I am your servant, is ultimately what this Pharisee was praying. Contrasted with that, Christ draws our attention to verse 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ's commentary on that, verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, totally opposite the Pharisee, is completely aware of his own personal sin. Rather than thinking God was privileged uh, to, to have him as a servant, realized he, the, the tax collector knew he was completely unworthy to be God's servant because of his sin. And you see that in how he prays. The tax collector knew he just needed God's mercy because he was a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, wouldn't admit an iota of sin, but rather used prayer as an opportunity to point to his own goodness. Pride, moral self-righteousness. And he lists out, God, I thank you for your grace that I don't struggle with all these other things that other people do. He's, he's thinking he actually merits favor with God because of how good he is. It's a moral superiority, moral self-righteousness. Now, how do you guard against self-righteousness? How do you guard against that? Because there's, there's a bit of that in all of us. Uh, somebody mentioned here the, the tendency to compare ourselves with other people. Oh, man, I heard that this person's struggling with that. And immediately there starts growing this little bit of pride inside of us that says, oh, I don't struggle with that. It's in all of us. How do we guard against that? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be doing a little bit of turning tonight. 1 Corinthians 15, guarding against the moral self-righteousness that wants to creep up in, in each of us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, there's a way, there's a way that we can still, in a prideful manner, almost pray verse 10. You, you could almost hear the Pharisee saying this, right? I thank you that I'm not like other people, but notice the spirit of what, and, and the words of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, it's the grace of God. If there's any goodness going on in me that you see, it's God's grace. And, and he says, now it's not just me just like subconsciously letting, you know, my thoughts go and God just infuses me and I just do stuff the right way. He says, no, I have to, I have to exhibit effort in that 
Isn't that what he says? I worked harder than any of them. But he says, even the ability to be working hard and striving to be like Christ is God's grace in me. So, so when somebody gives you a compliment about something, or when you see someone sin, or when you see somebody doing something good, your thoughts ought to be going, wow, God's grace at work here in that person or in me. That's God's grace. <laughs> Left to me, I know, the, I know myself and I know my Bible enough to know that there's no good that dwells in me. If there's any good that's happening and there's any growth in Christ-likeness, this is all of God. And so when we pray, like the Pharisee, like the tax collector, it's going to be evidenced if we think we are morally superior or whether we really believe that we're sinners and we really do need God's grace. And it'll be evident even in the content of our prayers. What do we pray for? We need God's grace. Moral self-righteousness. Similarly, there's a second category of pride, and uh, you're in 1 Corinthians. Turn over to chapter 8. Chapter 8, maybe just a couple pages back. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there's another category, not only moral self-righteousness, but also correct doctrine. Sometimes we can have a pride about being right on a correct, being correct in our doctrine. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, it's possible to know enough, and it's good, in fact, to know your Bible, to be reading your Bible. And, you know, like, let's say we're singing a hymn, maybe Bible passages are popping into your head because you know where in the Bible those exist. But it's possible to be proud about the knowledge that we have. Beware the tendency for pride to creep in with the more you know. If you're not careful, the fuller your head, sometimes the bigger your head. And, and you can start to look down on other people that don't know as much about the Bible. You ask them a very you know, sophisticated kind of question, and they don't even know what you're talking about. There's something in you that kind of feels good about that, and that's pride that's in you. Beware of being proud about how much you know. Now, how do you guard against the pride of correct doctrine? Turn over to Romans 14. Romans 14. Sometimes it's even pride about a correct application or what you think to be a correct application of a principle. Romans 14. There are divisions in the Roman church and there was a tendency for certain people to exercise what they believed was their biblical liberty to do something and then there was uh, other attitudes against that kind of perspective. Verse 3 of Romans 14 let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. In other words, the one that thinks it's okay to eat meat, for example. Uh, don't despise that one other person that says, well, no, I, I shouldn't eat that meat. And second half of the verse, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. At the end of this whole discussion over in verse 7 of chapter 15, the end result, the end, the end of his little discussion on how to deal with differences in your church, in verse 7 of Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
if you're a human being in any biblical church, you will come across other brothers and sisters in Christ who draw the line a little different than you or have a little bit different perspective on this particular doctrine. Um, once you find the church that you all have agreement on every little jot and tittle, you have found probably a cult. There are going to be differences. That's what Romans 14 and 15 is, is really addressing. So it's not about kind of figuring out how to eliminate the differences, but how to love those that you are different with. And it's not, Paul doesn't say, just do your best to tolerate and avoid those weird people that don't draw the line the same way you do. He says, welcome him. That's one way to help you against the tendency to be kind of fat and happy and set in your own perspective and thinking that you're wise in your own eyes is to just go ahead and love that person. And maybe, it's, maybe you don't need to like just pick at that thing that you're different about with them all the time, right? You know, your only point of interaction with is trying to show them that they're wrong, right? That's not the way to interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. So to exercise the, the to, to go against that tendency toward pride about correct doctrine, reach out, love, welcome those other believers. 1 Corinthians 13, you don't have to turn there. You already think, oh, the love chapter. Verse 7, this is another piece of how to help yourself against pride about correct doctrine. Believes all things is one of the things that love really does. Sometimes we see somebody that has a different perspective on something and immediately we know that we're right and they're wrong and we're annoyed that they don't draw it the same way we do. But love isn't quick to judge, as somebody already mentioned tonight. Love is quick to believe the best about that person. You know what? They're a believer. They have the word. They have the spirit. I'm going to believe the best about their relationship with God, and I'm going to try not to think the worst, which is not what love does. Love, love believes all things. It believes the best. That helps us against the pride about correct doctrine. A third aspect of pride is the pride that comes with achievement. The pride that comes with achievement. Now, is achievement wrong? No, achievement is not wrong. Um, Proverbs 13, 4, in fact, if you never are seeking to achieve anything, the Bible calls you a sluggard, right? The sluggard, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Uh, Proverbs is full of encouragement to work hard, to plan, to strive to accomplish tasks, to invest wisely, to plan ahead. Uh, Matthew, Matthew 25, remember the, the parable that Christ tells about the three servants that the master leaves and gives them each something to do with something? The two servants that actually doubled what they were given are commended. They've actually accomplished something, and, and the master has entrusted that to him, and the master is happy with that. So achievement, making the best of what God has given you, is good and right. And, and if there's no achievement or seeking to accomplish things, then, then you need to think about, am I actually on the lazy side of things and I'm making excuses for not achieving anything? Achievement is good, but with achievement can come the tendency toward pride. All your achievements, in fact are by God's gracious, sovereign control. In, in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah, remember Hannah, the mother of Samuel, she praises God that he 
makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and and inherit a seat of honor. So any accomplishment, any riches that you have, any success in your job or in a sport or in your vocation, in, in, in music, whatever achievement that you find, big or small, Hannah rightly attributed that to God. God's the one that's giving success. Now, turn to Psalm 75. Psalm 75 helps us remind, uh, helps us be reminded about what we should be thinking about achievements that we receive. Psalm 75, in verse 6 and 7. A healthy dose of this will help us guard against this. Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. When one would be given a, a place of authority or a new place of leadership or a new, new uh, realm of influence, the tendency that would come with that is look at the power that I have. Look at what I've done. I've clawed tooth and nail to accomplish this. I've worked hard. And, and God just very clearly says, no, I, if you have a position of authority or influence or, or that sort of thing, I, I'm the one that's made that happen. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, I should have just had us stay there, Paul very clearly helps these Corinthian believers who are getting proud about how significant their role in the church was. He says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have, what, that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You're acting like you've actually earned this or you, you've actually done something to have this position of, of, of influence or this particular gift that you have. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. If you have a gift or a, a particular ability in a certain area, or you even have the muscles or the coordination to be able to do certain things, or you, you've been given the, the opportunity to have some really good training in a particular area. That's not to be the source of pride, but that's to point you back and realize, who gave me that opportunity? And in fact, it would be wrong for you not to try to achieve and accomplish. It would be wrong for you not to be a good steward of that which you have been given. You know, children, as, as you're being given music lessons and things like that, those are God's kindnesses to you in the form of providing your parents with the resources to pay all that money for those lessons. How are you stewarding that which God has given? And, and if you're starting to find success in that, the tendency is to be proud about your achievement, but it's like, wait a minute, I, I've, I've not gotten myself here. This was a bunch of other people with God sovereignly in control that's given me this opportunity. So, What's going to guard against pride of achievement is recognizing God's sovereignty in all things, right? The, thinking rightly about God being in control of all things will, will start to pull away my reasons that I could tend to have for pride. Now, how would I know if I'm being too proud about my achievements? It's not wrong to be glad that you did an excellent performance 
musically or that you um, were pretty awesome in that sports game recently. It's not wrong to be glad for that. Um, it's kind of weird if you're like, oh, it's too bad. I did really great in that sports game the other day. That's weird. It's good to be thankful for that. But at the same time, what happens if you're not appropriately recognized? Sometimes that is telling of if I have pride about that. Nobody even noticed. Nobody even complimented me on this great thing that I did. The inordinate desire for recognition about that achievement sometimes is, a, is, a, is an indicator of if I'm struggling with pride about achievement. Look at Luke 17. Luke 17. This is really helpful for us uh, as we think about guarding against this pride in achievement. And particularly thinking about pride about achieving greatness in the kingdom. Luke 17 And uh, let's look at verse 7. This is Christ speaking. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Like like he's saying, if you have a servant, you're not going to have him come in from the field and prop his feet up. No. Verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Like, no, you're the servant, you're going to serve me. Like, we're not going to have the roles reversed here. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The, the implied answer is, well, not necessarily. The servant's doing what servants are supposed to do, and that's serve, kind of tirelessly at times. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, so you should say, you should have this mindset We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so when we're thinking about serving Christ and the tendency that we have to want to be recognized for our service, recognize, wait a minute, we're just doing what Christians do, and that's serve God and serve others. We don't need an award for every little thing that we do in the church. We don't need everybody to somehow find out about how much of a good servant I am. That's not what servants do, Christ is telling us. The right mindset recognizes, well, I'm a Christian. I love Christ. Of course I'm going to serve him, and it doesn't matter who sees or doesn't see. So that helps us guard against that tendency that all of us have to want to be recognized for our achievement. Lastly, a last aspect of pride creeping up is an independent spirit. I think Gil was getting at this when he was mentioning that there was the tendency sometimes to not listen. This goes right along with that, this independent spirit. Independent spirit, pride, shows up as a resistance to authority or, or sometimes an unteachability. No one can teach you anything because you already know everything. And if you don't, you're sure going to act like you do. Because you don't want to be shown as not knowing everything. I'm, I'm my own guy. That's, and that's, I think, particularly, particularly New England-esque. Self-made man. I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm not going to necessarily be helped by anybody. I'm not going to be told what I don't know. Resistance to authority. I want you to turn to Proverbs. Proverbs 2. And this is especially helpful for, for, for children, for teens to understand from a young, young age. This independent spirit shows itself probably before you're one, believe it or not. 
And so parents, we're, we should be on alert about how to help our children with this pride, this independent spirit that's inherited in all of us. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2. Children, let's think about, and parents, let's think about, what does God say that children, sh- what should their attitude be toward their most significant God-given authority? Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your ear, bending your ear to understanding. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight. Chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Skip over to chapter 7 and verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. What should a child's attitude toward his parents' instruction be? Tolerance and I'll just just listen as long as I can and then I'll get on with my day? No, it's, it's a bending of the ear. It's, it's eager to hear your parents' instruction. And, and the struggle often is when, when you're getting into the teen years, into the young adult years, and, and your parents are also navigating the, the hard, like, okay, how do we start to transition out of, you know, do what I say and don't even think about it, just do it, and coaching them into life, into adulthood, but sometimes as children, as teens, we're very quick to say, well, I've got it all figured out, and I'll listen to your opinion, but I'm just going to weigh it out with all the other opinions out in the world. Proverbs shows us that that's foolishness to be disregarding or just putting on par with all the other wisdom out there, the wisdom of your parents. Eye-rolling at your authority, even if it's just proverbial or actual, is pride. If you can't stand to listen to the wisdom that your parents have, how are you going to ever respond to any other lesser authority, really? Parents, it's, it's really vital that we also, in helping our children with uh, responding le- rightly to authority and, and the tendency that all of us have toward pride, another, not just specifically focus on the child and his pride, but also how do we respond to authority? What is our out loud attitude toward authority that God has given us? The government, the people in our lives, our children's teachers. How, how do we talk about and view adi- the authority? Whatever you say to your kids about authority, if you're, if you're treating authority cynically yourself, you're just undermining all that you're trying to help them with. Your, authority, your attitude toward authority ought to match what God says to expect rightly of a child and his authority. That pride that asserts its own rights and puts down the authority that God has given, beware of passing on pride to your children and their view of authority. So how we respond to our own authority, our kids are picking up on that more than we realize. Help them, help them to understand a right respect for authority. Even if we don't agree with it, even if they don't deserve the respect, we're still going to treat our own authorities with respect and not cynicism. When, when your child comes home and there's an, an issue with the teacher, are you picking up the phone and 
having it out with the teacher because of course your kid is always right? No. Maybe your kid is right in this instance, but beware of your outward attitude toward their authority. How ought they to respond? How ought they to deal with sometimes not great authority? Teach them through that. It's a very significant aspect of what they're going to grow up and view life as. If we're teaching them that authority, we can pick and choose who we respect. We can pick and choose who we submit to. We're hurting them in the long run. It's interesting. In Second Chronicles 18, uh, there's an instance. Remember Jehoshaphat, the mostly good king, and he has this silly lapse of judgment, you might say, this foolishness where, where he's allying, uh, uh, having an alliance with Ahab. It's interesting. Ahab allows Jehoshaphat to request a true prophet of God. Ahab saying, hey, I want to do this thing. And Jehoshaphat says, you've got all these priests, but maybe there's a true prophet of God we could ask. And Ahab kind of reluctantly says, well, yeah, there's this guy, Micaiah. And this is what he says. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. The proud person is going to be like Ahab. I don't want to get counsel from that person because they always disagree with me. Well, if, if godly authority is always disagreeing with you, then maybe you are the one who is proud. Maybe if you as a child or as a person feel like you're always pushing up against authority at, at every turn, it might be you that has the pride and needs to adjust your perspective. That was Ahab's response. How foolish to resist counsel just because you don't like it. Sometimes we can have a pride that is like the, the I think it's the sluggard. I don't know if I included it in my notes here. In, in Proverbs, there's the sluggard that is wiser than seven men who can render a reason. The one who wants to do what he wants to do isn't going to bother to get counsel because he knows probably deep down that the counsel that he's going to receive is going to be opposite of what he wants to do. And even if seven people could come to him and say, I think what you're doing is foolish. I think you ought to do this differently. The sluggard, the proud person is going to reason their way out of it because they want to do what they want to do. How foolish to make a significant decision and not invite godly counsel. Selective counsel just means that there's probably pride involved that wants to do what it wants to do anyway. Beware of your attitude toward authority. Beware of this independent spirit. Somebody else uh, gave an analogy this way. It's like returning the x-rays to the radiologist just because you didn't like the results. Beware of being quick to push against someone that actually has probably stuck their neck out to speak the truth and love to you. They already were like losing sleep over the fact that maybe you weren't going to respond well to it but they knew God needed them to do that because it's right to share the truth in love. Don't be quick to shove that counsel away that someone that's using the word of God that actually loves you enough to do the hard thing and share the truth with you, don't push that away. Pride has an independent spirit that doesn't want to listen to truth. God's people are to be marked by humility and to guard against that independent spirit Ultimately, you've got to recognize God's choice for your authority. Romans 13, we won't turn there, but it talks about the purpose of government, the purpose of authority. That's God's kindness to you to give you that. It's foolish to push up against it. 
I want you to turn to James 4 as we close. James 4. God's people are to be marked by not this proud, brash, know-it-all, dare, you know, prove-it-to-me kind of independent spirit kind of pride. God's people are to be marked by humility. Growing likeness to Christ, Philippians 2, looks like growing humility. James 4 encapsulates humility. In verse 6, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 7 starts to show us what humility really looks like. It looks like submission to God. Pride doesn't want to submit to anyone. Pride doesn't want to change. Pride doesn't want to admit that I've maybe been wrong on this perspective or wrong on this action or wrong in this thinking. I want you to back up, though. Verse 5. Why would it be right... I, I was thinking about this even in relation to this morning's message. Sometimes we think, man, all these people in my life in the church are like on me about like being in church and reading my Bible and why aren't I more faithful to God? And we can tend to think that it's like pushing us down, pushing us down, pushing us down. Why are they on me about this? But notice verse 5. Why would, why would God be pursuing you and trying to help you do the right thing? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And, and that's maybe the hardest uh, from, from the underlying Greek. It's a very actually hard passage to interpret. There's a couple of different ways you can go. But the way that ESV translates it here makes the most sense of the context of this passage. Worldliness its essence is a, a lifestyle, a mindset, a warp and woof of your life without God. Yeah, I come to church. Yeah, I'll read my Bible and stuff. But the regular habits of my life, God's not really in the picture. That's what James is getting at. And so in verse 5, he's saying, God is wanting your heart. He's yearning jealously for the spirit that could choose right, it could choose God, or it could choose wrong. The, this this wanter inside of all all human beings, if we're gods, he's right to be jealous for our wanter to desire him. And so, in context, the, this this need to be pursuing God in a bunch of practical ways, it's because God knows that it's best for us. He knows that the best place for us is when we are pursuing Him with our whole heart. So that's why he would go to great lengths to punish, to bring you a bunch of difficulty, Hebrews 12. He chastens those that he loves. Pride pushes up against that. And what does God do to the proud person in verse 6? He opposes. If you're, if you're running into walls everywhere you go in your life and you feel like your authority is always out to get you and you just can't do it right and you're trying to do something and somebody's always talking to you about the throngs things that you're doing, maybe it's because you're trying to do all the wrong things. And God is giving you his gracious stiff arm to say, stop being proud. Would you just give in to what, what you know is right? Would you just give in to my way? 
And if you do that, that's humility, and it's going to receive God's grace to continue doing the right thing. That's what God's people are marked by, is a humility that's going to work against moral self-righteousness. It's going to work against this pride in self in incorrect doctrine, this pride of achievement, this pride of having an independent spirit. May we as God's people be killing the pride that wants to creep in. How are we going to kill the pride? It's, be, it's going to be by giving ourselves healthy doses of who God is and who we are, our place before him. Would we as God's people be marked by humility toward God and humility toward others by consistently submitting to God? doing the next right thing that we know is to be from God's word. Let's pray.